0: Let's begin by um, praying Psalm 27 together, Psalm 27, which is on page 793, 793 of your hymnal, and David Anderson is passing out handouts as we begin this morning. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, indeed, we... um put our confidence and trust in you again. Um, Father, we're so grateful for um, the Lord's Day. Uh, We're grateful for um, this day that you have set apart for us to be gathered into your presence, to be renewed and remade according um, to the image of your Son as your Spirit works among us. Um, Father, we know um, that we need the Lord's Day. We need it um, often more than we even fully understand or 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 realize. Uh, We need word and sacrament. We need... Uh, the fellowship of the saints, we need um, the comfort um, that your Spirit gives us um, when we gather on your day. I pray that your Spirit would dwell with us now um, during our Sunday School hours as we continue to talk through issues of sin and holiness and what it means to be made um, like Jesus. And we pray, Father, um, that you would give us wisdom um, as we discuss these things by your Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see everybody. Um, we're continuing our uh, working way our way through um, the Human Sexuality Report published by our General Assembly um, several years ago. Um, we're working primarily through the 12 statements that the committee has made on um, issues um, having to do with sexuality and gender and sin and holiness and what it means for us to live faithfully before the Lord together. Um, last week we made it most of our way through the statement on original sin that you see there on your handout, um, the first two paragraphs. Um, We talked most recently um, last week about that that last sentence, this idea that um, we have to repent not only of sin in general as we're being made holy in Christ, um, but we're called to repent for our particular sins or our specific sins uh, particularly or specifically, um, which requires us to know our own hearts and our own um, temptations and our own um, sins for us to grow in awareness of those things. And certainly that is often the life of holiness is one where you um, grow in your knowledge of your sin over time. Um, things that you were not at one time aware of are now uh, more apparent to you, not only sins of commission, things that you do, but sins of omission, things that you neglect to do. Um, And that's a big part of what it means to grow in holiness, is to grow in even your understanding of your own sin, Um, knowledge of self and knowledge of God, as Calvin um, put it, is is, um, always intimately connected to one another. Um, That is, we ought to grieve for our sin, the report says, hate our sin, turn from our sin, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments. And that uh, essentially is a A quotation of the Westminster Confession of Faith there um, and a description, a profound description of what repentance is. It's grief for sin. It's hate for our sin. Um, There's a sorrow um, that we should feel um, about the ways that we displease God. Um, There should be a kind of hatred of it, um, a, a despising of it, and a turning away from it towards God, not just turning away in some generic fashion, but turning towards the Lord and towards communion with Him. And then endeavoring in a sincere and way um, to endeavor to walk with God um, in obedience to His, um, his commandments. Um, nevertheless, and this is the new material we're getting into today, um, the report writes, God does not wish for believers to live in perpetual misery for their sins, each of which have been pardoned and mortified in Christ. And they come now to one of the great tensions in the Christian life. Um, which is that we are called um, certainly to hate our sin, to grieve our sin, um, to turn away from it, um, to endeavor to walk in holiness. Um, And there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, as Paul says. Um, And yet, uh, Paul also says there is no condemnation um, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is part of the, the inescapable tension of the Christian life, too, that we are meant to embrace that reality just as fully as we embrace the reality that we are to sorrow and hate our sin and repent of it and confess it to God. We're also meant to embrace um, this reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And And the report rightly says that we're not to live in perpetual misery or misery alone, we might say, for our sins because they have been objectively pardoned Forgiven, that is, and mortified, that is, put to death in um, the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Um, and and like so many things in the Christian life, it, it, it is not, uh, you know, the, the way forward is not to find some way in the middle where we, we sort of um, feel bad for our sins um, and we sort of feel like we're forgiven by God um, for those sins, but rather um, we hold on to both those things at once. Um, completely and wholly. We hold on to the sorrow that we should have for our sin, the hatred for our sin, the misery that we should feel about our sin. And we hold on also to the, the declaration that there is no condemnation, that, that we are absolutely forgiven in Christ Jesus, that these things are objectively um, uh, given to us as a gift of God's free grace. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord had given us a practice um, where we could hold these things in tension together, right? and feel them fully um, week by week, and of course he has. And this is one of the reasons why we have um, a corporate um, confession of sin um, each Sunday, followed by a declaration of forgiveness and pardon um, by your minister, um, which is so that you can fully enter into both of those things. You can fully uh, hate your sin, and. Feel miserable about it and in a proper way, in a holy way. Um, You can truly grieve it. Um, You can do that corporately as you pray with um, your brothers and sisters. You can do that in the privacy of your own heart um, as you reflect on those things before God. But then you can also hear, immediately following, the good news. Lift up your heads, beloved. Hear these words of good news um, and comfort for you uh, from the scriptures. And then you can hear, again pronounced upon you in an objective way, the forgiveness of God, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I, I, I just want you to see that that's, that's part of why we do this each week is so that we can hold on to these things um, together with one another. Um, the perpetual or, or, or the, the frequent sort of um, sorrow that we should have for our sin, but also the, the absolute declaration of good news and forgiveness in Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, by the Spirit of Christ we are able to make spiritual progress and to do good works. And this is, it's interesting, this is within the statement on original sin. So despite everything we've said about original sin and how terrible it is and how we live in perpetual sin and all these kinds of things, still we want to hold this intention as well, that by the Spirit of Christ we are able, that as believers, elect ones, beings who have been regenerated and given a new heart by God and by the working of His Spirit, we are able not in and of ourselves, but by the power of the Spirit, um, through our union with Jesus, to make spiritual progress and to do good works. Good works. Not good works with an asterisk next to them, um, but good works. Works that are faithful. Works that God looks upon and is pleased by. um, Genuinely pleased by. Good works. Not perfectly, but truly. And that, that distinction between perfection and truth is a good one when we think about our good works. We don't ever do anything that is absolutely good, right? In in the sense that it's free of our sin or mixed motives or um, any of those kinds of things, right? Always um, anything that we do is tainted by original sin and by the remaining uh, corruption that we endure um, in this life. Um, But still we can say that truly we can do good works. We can do works that God looks upon and receives as good as fitting, as appropriate, as pleasing to Him, um, as even holy um, in that sense. Um, and why is that? is because as they say, even our imperfect works, which are all our works, are made acceptable through Christ. Um, so we present our works to God through our union with Jesus, and they are perfected by Him um, in our union with Him. And God is pleased to accept and reward them as, pleasing in his sight, he actually delights Christian in what you do, um, the works that you offer to God, um, the faithfulness that you show um, towards your spouse, um, the faithfulness that you show towards your children, um, children, the obedience um, and honor that you render to your parents, um, the good and hard work that you do, the service that you render um, to your neighbors and to your friends and to those who are in need. um, God is pleased by those things. It's important for you to know that, that God doesn't sort of hold his nose and sort of, you know, pretend like, well, you know, uh, that's not really what I was shooting for, but okay. Um, he, he actually is pleased by them, you know. Um, he, he delights in the things that you do um, that are faithful. And he does that not because you and your own work have, you know, some sort of merit. Um, before him, but because you're united to His Son. And, and in Christ um, your works are perfected and offered to God. And that, that fits in a lot of you know what we talked about last week in the sermon about offering ourselves um, in thanksgiving to the Father. Um, that's, that's how that works. We offer ourselves through Christ. All of the good works that we do are works of thanksgiving, are works that we offer in response to God's kindness and goodness and love for us. Any thoughts about that? Anybody struggle with that tension, that my works are actually acceptable to God, that he actually is pleased by them? Yeah, Michael. Just saying, you're just saying, you're saying, I agree. You're just saying yes. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for your honesty. Yeah. Jeremy, are you just volunteering too, or you you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the only thing I would say in response to that is that I would disagree that we're not meant to be motivated by rewards for our good works. Um, I think that if we read the New Testament, um, Paul frequently and other New Testament apostles um, in their writings frequently encourage us to believe that we will be rewarded for our good works and that we should, because of that reward, um, offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Um, it is not, and I, so I do want to say that clearly. I understand what you're saying, and certainly we should not get hung up on whether our works are perfect enough to offer to God, and there can be a kind of selfishness and navel-gazing that goes along with that that's unhealthy. Um, but but again and again in the New Testament, we are promised staggering rewards um, for our faithfulness to God. And, um, and there's nothing immature about that. There's nothing um, wrong about acknowledging that we are living a particular, if you're a Christian, you are living a particularly um, difficult kind of life because you believe that God will reward it. And that reward will most likely not, well, certainly will not come fully in this life, um, but it will come on the last day. In the world to come, that that God will um, indeed reward you, um, that there there will be a an evaluation of your life um, through Christ. It's all by grace. None of those things are in question. Uh, in question, um, but there is an offering of yourself that God will be pleased by, and He will reward it. Um, he will reward it with the crown of life, um, with with glory. and And I think I think it's really important for us to hold on to that. That promise, um, because it is one of the great motivations that is in the scriptures, um, that God rewards. You know, as the 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 um, the writer of the Hebrews says, right? Um, you must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Um, yeah, James.
1: Sure. <laughs> yeah. um, because I think <laughs> yeah. on the end of embracing the reality of the gospel, like, it can be really hard also not to be weighed down by unnecessary guilt. Yes. been really helpful to me recently to just reflect on the, the fact that God's forgiveness is an objective reality that just comes into my life and um
0: yeah, the, real and that's it's right
1: not based on how guilty I do or don't feel. Yeah,
0: the forgiveness of your sins is not contingent on your ability to to the extent to which you appropriately feel bad for them. Um, that you match some sort of standard that God has of perfect repentance. Um, that is absolutely true. Yeah, repentance is a pass/fail grade. Um, just to put it really bluntly, you know what I mean. Um, and and you you none of us repent perfectly, completely, completely um, of our sins. Um, we we in this life don't have that capacity. Um, there is such a thing as true repentance and false repentance. I think the scriptures teach that clearly. And, um, and that's what we should be concerned about. And that's actually one of the great gifts of the church is um, within the context of the church, um, there are meant to be overseers for your souls that will come to you and say, this is false repentance. This is not true repentance. Um, and does that make sense? Like, like my responsibility as your pastor isn't to evaluate everyone's quality of repentance in terms of whether you're, you know, doing it all the way. But I do have a responsibility to oversee your souls and such that if I feel like you're not truly repenting, if, you're, if there's a falsity to your repentance um, that I, meant I should and, and have at times come alongside folks and said, I don't think that you're truly repenting here. I think there's a falseness to your repentance, and you need to be careful about that. And that's, that's what I mean by the pass-fail thing, right? Um, there, there's true repentance, there's false repentance. But if you're in the true repentance category, your, your forgiveness is not dependent on, you know, how, how perfect your, the truth of your repentance is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Sylvia. I was just thinking that repentance is closely associated with humility. Yes, it is. Yeah, there's an, an intrinsic connection, right? Yeah, humble yourself before the Lord, right? James says, and He will lift you up, right? There, there is that. There, there must be that quality of humility for us in relationship to God. Um, and again, I think that's part of why we we do public repentance every week, is so that we learn how to do it, so that we learn um, the pride in our hearts um, is broken over time, um, that because we learn that my, I'm just like. Everybody else you know, I have to come confess my sins every week just like they do and and there's a there's a goodness to that for us um, yeah, there's a goodness like that anything else, yeah, Roy.
2: On, oh, i got to do this so I can be rewarded.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't put those things in objection, in opposition to one another. Um, and I would also ask you this question. Why did Jesus endure the cross and despise its shame? For the joy that was set before him. For the reward. Um, and so I, I, think, I think we just have to be careful or I understand the pushback you're giving. And I want to I push back and turn and say, um, God encourages us, I think, um, to trust that he will reward us um, for the ways that we offer ourselves in sacrifice to him and to others. Um, and I agree that it's, it's, it's not, we, we never, you know, ultimately our motivation for good works is gratitude, is love for God and what he's done for us. Um, but there is, there's just this inescapable element of reward um, I understand that there's that reward, but I guess
2: I see people, well, excuse me, from my experience with other people, it's like their motivation is more, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but some people seem to be motivated. Oh, I, I'm doing this in a sense to gain favor with God. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As far as to earn it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I'm not, I'm not at all questioning that. We don't earn favor with God in any way. Um, my salvation <laughs> will be no, um, better or more thorough than the thief on the cross and his salvation who lived as far as we know, a totally unrepentant life until the last moments of it. Um, and, and he, too will be rewarded. he will be rewarded for his faith, but I do think there'll be a, a there will be differences. There will be gradations and rewards um, in the next life. And I think... i that, that should not be my focus. I think it should be part of your focus if you're going to take the New Testament seriously.
2: I'm saying that should not be my primary
0: focus. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> I might be okay with that. <laughs> I, might, I might be okay with distinguishing primary. I just don't, I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose the way um, that the scriptures speak about reward. Okay. Yeah. rewards and that but I don't think that should be my primary motivation
2: because I feel like if that's my if it ever becomes my primary motivation then I start to feel like I'm trying to earn
3: my way mm-hmm. along.
0: yeah and and some of this may just be past like we just need may need to work through these things in terms of our own personality and to to you that may, it may feel that way and certainly the last thing I want to do is give people an impression that, that they're earning God's favor or um his his pleasure in them. Um okay. well, yeah. Good. That's good. <laughs> um No I appreciate that, Roy. I do. Yep. Um let's go on and move on to the next statement which is on desire. Um We affirm, the writers say, that not only our inclination towards sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. This is an important um, thing for us to wrestle with, especially when we come to sexual sin, Um, really, sin of any kind, but but since sexual sin is primarily what we're talking about in this report. Our inclination towards sin, the writers are saying, not only that is a result of the fall, um, but also that our desires for sin, um, our fallen desires, are actually sinful, um, that we are responsible for them before God, um, that they are sinful, and thus things that we must repent of. So we must not only repent of um, the actions that we take in response to our desires that are sinful, but we also must repent of our desires themselves to the extent that they're sinful. not saying that all our desires are sinful necessarily as human beings, but that the desires that we have that are sinful are sin um, and should be repented of before the Lord. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. This is an important um, claim that the report here is making, and it is in contradistinction to um, some of the claims that are being made um, in our culture today, even in Christian circles, um, which essentially say that that same such attraction is fine in and of itself, as long as you don't act on it. As long as you don't act on it um, physically, in terms of sexual acts with a person, another person, as long as you don't act on it in your mind and in your heart by lusting after someone um, in an intentional way. Um, what this report is saying is that the attraction itself um, is sinful and should be, must be even, uh, repented of and put to death. Um, and this is, this is a, I mean, I want to be candid. This is a hard thing to say to someone um, who is afflicted by these desires and these attractions. Um, I, I think it's faithful. I think it's right. But we, we should acknowledge the hardness of this of this reality, um, and I and I think part of this has to do with um, the the unnatural nature of same-sex attraction. Um, that um, the Lord, obviously, in in Genesis and His creation of man and woman, created um, sex um, as a gift um, to be experienced between a man and a woman. And because same-sex attraction is not for someone of the opposite sex, but someone for your own sex, um, it is impossible for that attraction to be pleasing to God. Um, It is very possible for opposite-sex attraction to be pleasing to God. Um, Now, there, of course, there are many scenarios where it's not. Uh, We can think about those. But um, it is not, I would say, for example, sinful for... Um, a young man um, who's unmarried to feel an attraction to a young woman who's unmarried. Um, That or vice versa for a young woman towards a young man. Um, Because that desire um, can be expressed um, in a fitting, godly, righteous, holy way within the covenant of marriage. Now, that that attraction can lead to all sorts of sin, right? Um, In terms of lust or in terms of sexual activity, or in terms of things that displease God um, outside of the context of marriage. But the attraction in and of itself is not um, against nature. And and by against nature, we're not just referring to nature as some sort of generic thing out there. We're referring to God's expressed um, design in nature. Um, so it's not against God's design in nature. It's actually in line with God's design in nature, um, which is for young men and young women to fall in love and to... Be attracted to one another, and to to formalize that attraction and desire, and marriage, and then to procreate and have children. Yes, Matthew. So I want to tread extremely carefully here. Yes, sir. If there are objective, I
4: mean, objectively beautiful people. Mm-hmm.
1: Mhm.
0: <laughs> Some other married guy
4: <laughs> Yes.
0: Um, in the first scenario, I don't think it necessarily is um, a man being a, having a recognizing the attractiveness of a woman, um, not dwelling on that, not sexualizing that, not you know not allowing that to lead to lust of any kind. I and I'm and I'm as you noticed probably the report doesn't address this question explicitly, right? Um, it, and so I'm just speaking for myself here. Um, I do think these things are hard to parse out um, and and we're getting into really fine distinctions. What is the distinction between attraction and sinful desire, lust um, those kinds of things And I think I think there are um, <clears throat> these are fine and hard distinctions to make but I would say um, that, for a man to be attracted to a woman or a woman to be attracted to a man, um, there's always going to be an inescapable sexual quality to that because we're sexual beings. And the Lord made us that way. He made us as sexual beings. Um, And not to be, you know, not to be overly morbid or whatever, but in the hypothetical scenario that you're describing, you know, it's always possible that you could be freed from your present marriage, because your spouse dies and that person's spouse dies, you know what I mean. Like there, there are hypothetical ways for that attraction to be um, fittingly consummated and blessed by God. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that, I'm not encouraging anyone to go down that road in their heads. I'm just saying, if we're going to play this out theoretically, right, um, and from a philosophical perspective, does that make sense? Um, that that that. There, there are ways in which that attraction can be licit. Um, and and there'll be, there are some folks within this debate that's taking place um, within um, even some folks in our denomination who I disagree with who will try to create a parallel and say, well, at, for a same sex person to be attracted to a person of the same sex is just the same as a married man to be attracted to women to whom he 's not married, and I want to say no it 's not it 's really not the same because one one desire is natural in the sense that it fits with the way in which the Lord made um, created us male and female now again i'm not i 'm not trying to um, give you know married men who lust after women who are they're not married to any pass here you need to put that sin to death you need to put those desires to death Um, but i also want to say that there is a i don't think that it's the same thing Um, i do think that there is the the attraction to someone of your same sex um, is something that that has to be cut off at the root Um, because it is in itself sinful, in a way that—I hate these language—but heterosexual attraction is not. Um, and that—that's where I'm at on this. And I'm—I'm I'm just speaking for myself here. Um, I'm not, and I don't. I certainly don't feel as confident about what I've just said as I do about all the things that our confession speaks to. Or do you know what I mean? Like th- these are not specific questions that our confession speaks to. Um, but I, I'm saying this, as I've thought about it, as I've wrestled with these things, this is where I've come down. Um, um, and, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know all the motivations for why the report doesn't address specifically the question you're asking. But um, they, rather they are just simply saying same-sex attraction is always sinful and must be repented of, which I totally agree, agree with that, and I, th- I think we have to hold on to that. Yes, ma'am. Maybe I've yes.
3: So a p- previous pastor, Ken Christian, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to the Sunday school
1: on this, and he said that he can. He said if a man and a woman being married is a picture of Christ in the church, mm-hmm. then a man being attracted to a man, in even subcon- like, even though the, the two people involved in that have no intention of it being that, it becomes a picture of Christ rejecting the church. Being sufficient in himself, and that women being together, not their their intention, but it represents Christ, the church rejecting Christ, Mm -hmm. and saying that she is sufficient in herself. Mm -hmm. But that a man and a woman together is Christ and the church, Mm -hmm. and so that you know speaks to the like just
0: regardless of the intention. Right. There's there's symbolic realities. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um Jacqueline's just pointing out the connection between Ephesians 5 that Paul makes between um marriage between a man and a woman and being an image of Christ and the church, a, a great mystery as Paul um says and and that that reality is lost um in same-sex attraction. And that yeah, certainly that's part of why we would um why I would say that it's that it's inherently sinful and must be repented of. Um, yeah. yes ma'am. Would you like to address the friendship of Jonathan and David? Sure. Yes. They, were they were friends. I'm not saying if I, if you hear me saying that men cannot be friends with men, I am not saying that. Um, I am I celebrate male friendship. And I'm very, very grateful for the men in my life who are, um, who are close uh, friends, uh, intimate friends, um, and and there's that fascinating line in. Um, I appreciate you bringing that up, Sylvia. It's a great, it's fascinating story. So Second Samuel one. Um, let me see. After Saul and Jonathan die, David writes this lament. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Um, And of course, as you may know, there are some scholars who take those words and say, well, this is evidence of a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan because he says that um, their love was extraordinary that it surpassed the love of women. Um, and I, I just want to say that's not true. Um, first of all, um, that, that's quite a leap that's being made. Um, but also I would say that I think David is speaking to something that's true there, which there is a kind of intimacy and friendship that can exist between two men um, or two women, and I think part of it is because of the absence of sexual tension um, and that, that reality, that that can actually create um, a kind of intimacy that is unique. Um, and, and it's different um, than the kind of intimacy even between a man and his wife. And, and I don't think the Lord... I don't. I don't see that as having anything to do with same-sex attraction, as we're talking about it here. Have it to do, I see it as something that that there can be. Um, there's there's something that is really sweet about the potential for same-sex friendship. And and certainly, um, for the this is we're going to talk more about this in future statements. But certainly, friendship is a category that. We really need to redeem, if we're gonna offer to people who struggle with same-sex attraction, um, something positive and good. Um, because friendship is, I think, in my mind, is one of, it's one of the great tragedies of modern life, I think, that we have, we have put sexual relationships way up here as the end-all and be-all of what it means to be human, and we've put friendship as this sort of, like, optional thing that, you know, I mean, if you find good friends, okay, but you don't really need that. What you need is sexual intimacy. And I think that that, (laughs) you know, um, our Lord did not enjoy sexual intimacy um, in his life. Um, He did enjoy friendship. Um, I think the same is true for the Apostle Paul. Paul. and, and that's something for us to reflect on, um, to really think deeply about that, that friendship is a, is a great and deep gift, and there are possibilities in same-sex friendships for love and for intimacy um, that is different and really, really good than the kind of love and intimacy that exists in a sexual relationship, even one that's blessed by God.: Yeah. The Nancy Piercy book.
4: Yeah, that has a. It goes really deep into
1: that particular subject. Mm-hmm. Of
4: the church providing a safe place for friendships with the um, LGBT community. Yeah. And as these people, um, as that community maybe turns away, they need something to replace.
0: Yeah. Um, that way. Yeah, and I, I would say we all need it. We all, you know. It's one of the great, like I said, the great losses of modern life, I think, um, that we, and I think this, I, you know, I don't know as much about how women feel about friendships, but um, I think for men particularly, there has been this, there is this suspicion now about male relationships that they must be sexual if you're, if you have an intimacy with another man. And I think that's a, it's horrible. Um. And it's one of the ways in which the sexual revolution has really deformed us, all of us, um, regardless of your sexual inclinations. Um, there, there should be no shame in great intimacy between men in friendship. Um, and I think it's actually because of the absence of that um, you know, sexual tension or whatever that, that creates that space. Yes. Uh, I, I appreciate this statement about inclination. Which, before I may just follow up on it, which I would say, and we'll talk more about this, but for same sex attracted men then, who then can they probably find the best, most intimate, deep kind of friendships with? It's not going to be with other same sex attracted men. Does that make sense? They need men who are not. Um, attracted in those ways, to love them, because that, you know, I don't, I can be friends with a SSA guy and there's not going to be sexual tension, for me at least, because that's not something that I think about or, you know what I mean? And so there there can be this sort of freedom to be known um, apart from sex, um, which is something that all of us need, um, regardless of who we are. Yeah, go ahead.
3: Mm-hmm. It's like such a, like a spirit of the age kind of thing, I feel like even, even in like my, my own daily life, the idea to where, like, my inclinations that I have, and I have accepted them, or I've just kind of like not looked at them, and the way in which i react this way, or that way. Yeah. And to speak up, it's just the way I am, not only in this aspect, but in so many other ways as well. And to not, you know, to not examine yourself, to not examine how they're formed, and to not ever have to kind of like ask to to submit oneself to a sort of discipline whereby you maybe untangle the inclinations that
0: are actually sinful. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that, John. That's very helpful. We should expand this, right, not just about sexual matters, but all all of us have inclinations towards sin, um, based on our, how we're hardwired, you know, nature, nurture, whatever it is, God's providence. Um, all of us are, have things that we are weak in, um, and, and as part of that weakness, where it's because we're inclined to sin in those ways. Um, and you're right. Um, we need to repent of those things. Um, not only the actions themselves, but also the inclinations, right? Um, you know, it is not sufficient for you to say, well, I, I, I don't ever give money to the church or for those who are in need because, you know, I'm just not very good with money. Um, and I just, like, that doesn't work, right? That's, a, that's an inclination to sin that you need to put to death and you need to repent of. You know, you can't just say, well, I'm just, I'm just an angry person, you know, and that's why I, I mistreat my spouse or my children or my neighbor or the guy that just cut me off. On the highway, or whoever, you know, um, that's not that's not sufficient. You you need to put that to that's that's an inclination to sin, not just the sin itself, but the or not just the action itself, but the the inclination is itself sinful. So yeah, absolutely, we need to expand this beyond um, just how it has to do with our sexual nature. Yeah. Any other comments before we wrap this up into this last paragraph here? About five more minutes. Yeah, Mike. I'm uh, thinking about Matt's question How does it beauty come into that mm-hmm. delight? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. i, I, I think C.S. Lewis a
1: lot. Mm hmm. The way he talks. Mm hmm. I've uh, got to be uh, pleased by our little grunts of players. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh and our appreciation for perfection for form. Mm-hmm.
3: is that I figure appreciation
1: of form of a <coughs> another male. Mm-hmm. That, I'm just saying
0: proportion Sure. Yeah, there I mean there's nothing in the world more glorious than the human body. Um and that's because God made it that way, right? <laughs> he made everything, and then he made human beings, and he said, very good. Um, and, and I think that's why, that's why painters have always been obsessed with the human body, um, because it's glorious, um, because it is beautiful. And, and I think that idea of paint, like there is a, you know, if you, if you look at, um, there is a difference between, let's just say, um, fine art that depicts a nude person, male or female, and pornographic material that depicts a nude person, male or female. You know what I mean? And we all know the difference, I think, just intuitively, instinctively, that there is, there is a difference. Um, and it is certainly possible to aesthetically, um, be pleased by the beauty of a human body. And, um, and I think, you know, for me, you know, it's much easier to say that about a fine art painting of a woman than a naked man. Um, but there is, on both parts, that that's true. And that's because there's a glorious uh, nature to our humanity, the way the Lord has made us as physical beings. and we, And we, yes, we can certainly affirm that. But we can also say there's all sorts of ways that, you know, pornographic ways that have nothing to do really with admiring beauty. I mean, maybe there's a seed of that somewhere underneath everything, um, but it's about desire, it's about possession, it's about... Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm just thinking in terms of grace, gracefulness, and... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no question, like, part of the reason I like sports is because God made you know, particularly men, to have these kind of athletic, powerful bodies that can do, like, I I have been enjoying watching the NBA, right, the last three, four, five years. Um, That coincides with the drafting of a certain um, Slovenian player um, with the Dallas Mavericks. Um, And uh, (laughs) um, Luca. Um, And it, it is remarkable. Like, it is, there's, like, Hardly anything more remarkable than a guy like going down the lane and like throwing one down, you know. Um, and there, there is, there's a, there's a beauty and a magnificence to that, right? Um, and and you could say the same thing about women, maybe not pre- dunking a basketball, but um, you know, you know, that's this is why dance has been such a big thing, and uh, women have, you know, often um, demonstrated their gifts in, in forms like that. There's a beauty to the physicality of that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know if that if I'm resonating with what you're saying. It does. Yeah. yeah.
3: I'm just wondering what's the distinctions that, uh, in in what you were saying in regards
0: to maths Yeah. I don't well I'm not talking about something sexual necessarily in those appreciations. <laughs> yeah. 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 There are certainly ways to appreciate the glory of, of human bodies that are not necessarily sexualized. I mean, I, I, do, I do think that we are, there is, well, I don't know if I want to say that. Um, I mean, these are such fine distinctions to talk about, right? Because the reality is that we are sexual beings. I'm a sexual being, so are you, so is every other person in this room. And the Lord made us that way on purpose. And so there, there always is going to be, I think, some kind of, um, but when you're talking about opposite sex appreciation, <laughs> shall we say, there's always going to be a kind of sexual nature to that reality that we need to be careful about and guard against and, you know, um, and just watch ourselves. I think, I think it's very hard for me as a heterosexual man to have a purely aesthetic appreciation for a woman's body, um, just be honest with you, right, um, because I'm a sexual person. Um, and so we, we should be candid about those things, and we, that means I need to put to death any kind of aspect of lust or desire that's illicit, those kinds of things. Um, and I think part of what we're saying is that for men that struggle with same-sex attraction, um, there is that sexual element is inherent in their appreciation of the male form. Does that make sense? And so it's for that reason that that attraction has to be put to death because they're not made to be attracted in that direction. That's not how the Lord created them or for a same-sex attracted woman in the same way. Yep. All right. Let me end with this because this is good news. (laughs) Nevertheless, nevertheless, despite everything we've just said about the ways that we have to put to death attraction and all these things we must celebrate that despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and this isn't just true for same-sex attracted people this is true for me and for you and for your neighbor and for your child and for your spouse um, and anyone else despite the continuing presence of sinful desires and even at times egregious sinful behavior that's me. That's you, if you're honest. Repentant, justified, and adopted believers are free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, and this is true unequivocally um, for um, same-sex attractive believers, just as it's true for, um, for me um, and for people who are not afflicted by those desires or temptations. Um, So we want to to say this unequivocally, that there is grace and mercy and freedom and forgiveness for all. um, Free from condemnation through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, This is why imputation is so important, because it means that we all get Christ's righteousness, which is perfect, which is complete, which is uh, mature. And that second part that we were talking about earlier, are actually able to please God by walking in the Spirit. Um, we need to say this boldly and clearly, that same-sex attracted Christians are able to please God by walking in the Spirit. There's no asterisk, there's no um, disclaimer there. Um, just as I or anyone else am able to please God. Um, in some sense, there's, I really shouldn't even have to say that. But just in case I do, I just want to say that really clearly. Um, that the path of holiness is available to all of us, and all of us are called to walk that path. And it is pleasing to God when we walk in holiness. It really is. Um, We become ingredients in his pleasure. Um, Let me just read this Heidelberg Catechism question um, 32. But why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am a partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name, and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. Um, This is what it means to be a Christian person, Um, to fight against sin and Satan in this life, Um, all your life until the end. Um, And I think this is why um, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more um, death becomes to seem to you not so much this terrible, tragic thing, but this reward, this release, this um, opportunity to be free um, from that struggle, from that fight against Satan um, and against sin. And um, this, of course, is the way that uh, many of the, Saints and the Scriptures um, speak about death um, for that reason, um, and and so and I just want to say that that's true. That's for true for a same-sex attracted person as well as someone who doesn't struggle with those things, and um, and that's a great gift for all of us. Um, this gift of of repentance, walking towards holiness, being made like Jesus, and struggling against our sin. All right, let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise um, for your kindness to us, for your grace, for your mercy. I pray that we would know in Christ um, that we are holy, um, that we are forgiven, that there is no condemnation, that we would hold on um, to that reality, Father, even as we talk about these things. Um, We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.